from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's the weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, breast cancer and DNA degradation. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Arthur and France Janov, who will talk about primal healing. Also, we'll find out if two snowflakes are alike. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of redemption. You know, for a moment I thought Jesus Christ was my co-pilot. Oh, well, you know, if uh, anybody's going to be your co-pilot, I guess Jesus would probably be a good choice. Yeah, except he hasn't been around for the last couple of millennium. Uh, He might be coming back one of these days. (laughs) But it's nice to have you as a co-pilot, too, then. (laughs) Well, I don't have all the magical powers that he does. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Good April Fool's jokes uh, this season? April Fool's. Huh, it just came and gone. I haven't seen anything very funny (laughs) I'll put it on my list for next uh, year's to uh, really play a big joke on you. Maybe I'll I'll get a sex change operation or something. Okay. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) Or maybe I'll I'll surprise you with a sex change operation for yourself, and you'll Mm. just wake up and you'll be a hermaphrodite or something. (laughs) You an oyster. (laughs) Speaking of which, our first story for this week, if you were to become a hermaphrodite, you might have to be worried about breast cancer. Breast cancer? How do you like that segue there? It was almost (laughs) like I planned that, but... (laughs) So is this like some hormone uh, Well, so it's a big issue, I guess, for women, obviously, who are concerned about whether or not they'll get breast cancer. Uh-huh. And a lot of the detection techniques using x-rays right. miss, apparently, like about 20% of the cancers that exist. Okay, because they're too small? Or it's either too, too small or, or they don't show up, image or not. Right. So what a lot of people have been trying to do is develop some contrast agents to help detect microcalcifications okay. that are produced by these tumors. Okay. And that's what a group of researchers have actually done. It's a group uh, led by John Frangioni and his colleagues at Harvard Medical School. What they've done is they've developed a number of different molecules that attack attached to bisphosphonate. And that's apparently a chemical that's most prevalent in tumorous. So it's a marker then? Yeah, it's, a, it's a basically a marker for tumor cells. And what they did is they attached a couple different groups to that, which uh, either emit in the infrared spectrum or also uh, show up as contrast agents in uh, MRI studies as well. Okay, cool. So they're getting pretty close to single molecule detection now, huh? <laughs> Soon, even single electron. Because <laughs> who knows what those electrons are doing when no one's looking. Yeah. Are they really indistinguishable? <laughs> Are they both a particle and a wave? That Mm. is the question. If you measure its position, can you also tell its velocity with precision? (laughs) So many things those electrons are up to, it's amazing. But So the chemical that these researchers came up with was what they termed PAM-800, and the big problem was that they weren't able to synthesize a lot of this compound, mm-hmm. but in their current work, a postdoc named Kumar Bhushan has developed a novel method for synthesizing this compound in quantity, right. and so they've been able to test this now in pigs and show that it helps detect these bisphosphonate compounds. Cancers in pigs. Basically, cancers in pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Very useful to detect, you know? Well, you know, I've, I want that when I'm eating my pork products to know it's cancer-free. So <laughs> Anyway, so this is very fascinating work. It was presented at at the uh, recent American Chemical Society meeting in Chicago. So, Charles, do you ever worry that your DNA is degrading? I think it's degrading as we speak. Those telomeres are shortening rapidly by the day, right? <laughs> Reinforces, man. <laughs> I feel like Logan in Logan's Run, you know. The uh-huh. clock is ticking down. Soon I'll be Red 7 or whatever it is. Uh-huh. Carousel 7? Well, Carousel's Renewal. <laughs> oh. So... 
that's actually a problem archaeologists are having with fossil samples is that DNA degrades after excavation. Right. And statistically speaking, if you have freshly excavated fossils, about half the time you can recover the DNA pretty successfully. But if it's in in storage or in a museum for a while, usually it's these DNA degrades and the success rate goes down to about 20% or even less. Right. Is this if it's been exposed just to the atmosphere or also to light, uh, facilitates the degradation? That's some of the main causes. But what Eva Marie Geigel and her uh, team have found is that to suggest that the way we store and clean museum samples has a profound effect on how long the DNA net is viable. So uh, what they did was they had samples from two different digs, one from 1947 and another in 2004 from the same site. Mm -hmm. And what they found was freshly dug up samples had pretty intact DNAs, whereas the ones that have been out for a while have uh, started to degrade. What do they suggest then as far as what museum curators should be doing then uh, to preserve these samples? Right now, they don't have any specific suggestions, except that the cleansing and the storing process should be uh, re-examined to see how DNA will not be disturbed. Mm -hmm. And basically, main conclusion is that if you want good DNA, then you should get it from uh, freshly dug up samples. Or go to your local grocer (laughs) in the produce aisle. This was published in our very favorite journal. Oh, it can't be. (laughs) Indeed. The Proceedings? Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Arthur and Franz Janov will join us to discuss primal healing. So stay tuned. Sources of emotional pain are large and varied. The psychological roots of this pairing have been treated with various psychotherapeutic approaches. However, a combination of both neurobiological and psychological approaches may help in this behavior. Well, joining us today on the Grok Science Show is Dr. Arthur Janov and Dr. Franz Janov. Dr. Janov is the founder, author of Primal Therapy, whose research has led to the integration of both neuroscience and psychology. He is the founder of Primal Therapy, and his new book discusses some of these issues. Dr. Arthur Janov, Dr. Franz Janov, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Yes, hello. Uh, Well, I'm curious. So this is certainly a very fascinating book that you've written on primal therapy, but I'm curious if maybe you can talk first about the history of primal therapy, in particular your famed book, Primal Scream. Well, actually, there was a vaudeville act in New York, and uh, someone was telling us about the vaudeville act. This is now 35, 36 years later. And the guy was yelling, Mama, Mama, and encouraging the audience to do it, and uh, they all cried and so on. And then one of my patients tried it and cried, and 
then said he could feel, and so it turned out to be a, uh, the idea was that you relive past traumas, lack of love in your life, and somehow you change. And now, 36 years later, we've been refining it with all neurology and all kinds of double-blind scientific research projects, and we have a pretty good idea now that you can no longer just talk to the verbal brain. You need to go much deeper if you're going to make real change in therapy. And so that's what we do. We bring patients back to earlier lives where there was lack of love or some kind of trauma in their life, and they relive it. And little by little, uh, the, the pain of the trauma goes away. When the, when the patient, and it was just a regular group, said he could feel again after he had cried and yelled mama on the floor, I'd never seen anything like it. I've been in practice for many years before that. And it just started me thinking that there's something there and that I better look into it. Well, I looked into it now for 36 years, and it, it seems to verify what I originally saw because thousands of patients have gone through it from almost every country in the world. And all our research points out that their blood pressure drops, that their stress hormone level drops, and there's all kinds of scientific data now to confirm what we originally saw. I think that that's what the difference is uh, between primal therapy and other therapy at this point is that instead of talking about things that hurt, because what really is is that the hurt that is registered as a child and then later on in life, even though even as an adult, but the hurt stays in our system unless it is totally experienced, totally felt. A child has no way of feeling those feelings because he's in a situation maybe where he's not loved and that's just the way it is. So the way the child survives is by repressing and actually getting away from consciousness the fact that he is not loved, that his parents are not interested, that they're not going to take him in his arms or listen to him when he needs it. So the child represses those needs, but the needs remain in the system and the repression keeps the child from feeling what it is. As adults, we can go back and actually feel what we need to feel to get ourselves free from the pain that has been stored in effect. So in other words, the original pain is imprinted throughout the body, in the brain, and all through the neuro juices, uh, the brain's hormones. And when we relive, we change all of that whole cascade of changes in the body. So that, for example, the heart rate drops by 10 beats per minute and things like that. We get, we get confirmation all the time. You talk in your book a lot about neural structures that might be important for the, the imprinting of this kind of behavior. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what type of brain structures are important in this? Uh, without, without getting too technical, what okay. we try to do is address the limbic system, which is really the feeling center of the brain. And that's more precisely the amygdala, hippocampus, and the hypothalamus. And what we try to do is find the feelings that are lodged there. And when we do brain research afterward, we get very great changes in the brain. That is, the brain has less amplitude, it's not so heavily repressed, and the frequency of the brain slows down so that people are not speedy. And that's another way we confirm that people are relaxed after the therapy. And as well as the brain changing, people change in their behavior, they change in about everything, actually. Once the pain is out, because the pain shapes up a child and an adult. It's like you, are, you have to spend a life trying to avoid the pain, therefore there's a lot of things that you cannot come close to. There's a lot of behavior that you have to change just so that first you adapt to your, what your parents want you to be and therefore you become someone else. So once in primal therapy when people feel what is being stored, the pain that that created, then they become themselves little by little. They just become who they should have been. And it's a great feeling of being able to just be who you are. So how does one begin to uh, access these primal feelings then? When patients come uh, to us, they, they are in a very quiet room, padded, just in case they get angry. 
and we just block their defenses basically they just start talking about their life and very soon we can see the areas that are hurting and we just help them go into it very softly we identify the defenses what they use to stay away from it and we block those like someone will say for example oh you know i'm so lonely i'm lonely all my life and then they'll say oh yeah but of course that's normal well of course that's normal that's a defense so we'll go back to so you are lonely do you remember times when you were specifically lonely and we just take them back to the memories or to to the feeling itself until the power of the feeling comes up and erupts and they start crying and they got they start feeling what hurt them okay. feeling is what takes them back to their childhood by the way we don't have to artificially say well do you remember when you were five year old and your mother was angry at you the way it was imprinted happens backwards. In other words, primal therapy is really neurosis in reverse. It happens by itself. Once the patients are locked into feelings, the feeling takes them back because there's, there's a frequency resonance between the current feeling and the past feeling. They're all like the same constitution. So once they're locked into feeling, they will resonate back to the original traumas, the original lack of love and so on. It's just almost mathematic in its precision. So do you think then uh, this new type of therapy is accessing those type of limbic areas uh, more specifically? Well, yes. I mean, you know, what, what's all the new information is coming up is that as you, your feelings get activated in the limbic system, the prefrontal area of the brain, which helps repression, gets less active. And what we try to do is make the prefrontal area less active and little by little give in to the feeling centers. And the trouble with modern psychotherapy is we're addressing the wrong brain. We're, we're addressing the verbal, the intellectual brain, and, we never, and the more we do that, the less we get access to feelings. So what we've done is turn that psychotherapy on its head, you know, and I'm, I know pretty well what, what I, whereas I speak because I was a psychoanalytic therapist for many years, a Freudian therapist, and found that it just wasn't working at all. I'm curious, what are your views on neuropharmacological approaches? The problem is, is that psychiatry and psychology have become an arm of the pharmaceutical industry. That is to say, every problem now is suppressed by drugs. It push the pain down. That's an endless process. And what we find we can do is let the pain out, but in very small titrated doses, so it does not overwhelm the patient. We may use drugs when people are very, very deep in depression or pain for, for a moment, but the object of the therapy is not drugs at all. It's to get rid of drugs and find a way to get into yourself naturally. It's a totally natural process. And it is a process in the sense that the patient actually gets access to its feeling. In other words, once they know how to get to their own feelings, it's a therapy that they can do without us. Once they know how to get into it and to let themselves feel the pain, then you know they leave us and they keep on doing the primal process on their own. And that's also the beauty of it, is that once you have what we call access to your feelings, you can just go and feel wherever you are and whenever you need to. And what, what the therapy is about, by the way, is described pretty much in detail in my new book called Primal Healing. And we find out there the precise process by which primal therapy takes place. And the reason I mention this is because there's something like 500 clinics in the world using our name, pretending to be primal therapists, and almost none of it's never true. And it's dangerous when you put it in untrained hands. We see a lot of people who come to us after having had what they thought was primal therapy somewhere else. Because none of the people that we have heard so far doing primal therapy have actually bothered going into the research or into the training. And they sort of wing it, thinking, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell the patient to scream and, and bang the wall with a, with a baseball bat. Well, that's not at all what the therapy is about. 
So this is not good therapy and it's not helping people. At the primal center, we do it in a very soft and systematic way and we help the people go back to what hurt them in a natural way, in a way that is following their feeling, not what the therapist thinks they have to go to. And it's a big difference. In that regard, I'm curious, how much of the uh, psychotherapeutic community is adopting these views? Well, there's a lot more than uh, people would admit, you know. Mm. We've been offered lectureships at many universities. I've lectured at the Royal College of Medicine in England and Karolinska in Sweden and so on. And the scientific community is beginning to get aware of it. I think the psychiatric community is a little behind. I mean, they still prefer the talking to the wrong brain, essentially, and getting nowhere but the, the patient because of his insights seems to think that he's getting somewhere because he uses his insights as part of a mechanism of repression. The psychological community, I think they know the value of feeling feelings. A lot, that's why so many people are trying to do primal therapy. They understand, they can see that people who actually have access to feelings change. They, and by the way, people change very fast while talking could take the rest of your life. When you know that a little feeling, a little childhood feeling, can give birth to millions of different ideas so that it will stay repressed, and different behaviors, that all that falls away once the feeling is felt and there is no need for the repression. So then, you know, people can see in the, in the psychological community how fast and effective primal therapy is, feeling feelings. So the problem is that they're trying to do it without really knowing what they're doing, which is, you know, or refining what Dr. Janov has discovered, unfortunately. I mean, there's, there's a whole group out there called rebirthers that are putting people in birth traumas right away, something we really do not do, find it dangerous. But people have taken little techniques and gone with it. But I think the basic difference between us and others is that we do not use drugs extensively to push back pain. What we do is let it up. And then there's such a relief when you take all that burden out of the system. And then when we do the stress hormone test, we find that patients chemically are in a lot less stress than they ever were before, especially when their blood pressure comes way down, when their migraines stop and so on. There's a lot of symptoms that arise when the, the, the pain is repressed because this pain is in there, churning inside our system. So it, it gives a, a way to a lot of symptoms that fall away or get a lot better during the therapy. But going back to all the, the, the fake primal therapy that's out there, on our website at primaltherapy.com, we actually have a section which is written by people who have gone to other primal therapy quote and come back to us. And it's called Aberration and Deviation in Primal Therapy. And then you can read horrendous stories there. Uh, in that regard, I'm curious if maybe you can point uh, the listeners to uh, good sources for information on primal therapy. The definitive work has just been published and is out now in the bookshops called Primal Healing. And it's really all the latest research we've done and dovetailing with a lot of the research done in the field of neurology and biochemistry. It's done for the lay public, by the way. The, the, the book is... And I think it's probably the most advanced of all my books, without a doubt. And it there it explains little by little what a feeling does to your system when you repress it and what happens to it when it comes out and gets out of your system. The other source is the, our website, which is extremely informative. There's a few hundred pages in there. It answers a lot of questions, describes a lot of things, and it's primaltherapy.com and the people will find a lot of answers and information in there. So have a, a, a series of uh, DVDs that were done in-house with our patients and with our therapists 
And when people started looking at them and said, well, why don't you sell them? These are really interesting. So they are available now to the public as well, and that can also be done from the website. So it's the book, the website, and, and the videotapes. Uh, well, I'm curious, we're running a little out of time, but uh, I'd just like to ask you about one of your famous patients, obviously uh, John Lennon. Uh, you know, just your experience dealing with him and how maybe your therapy has evolved since him. Uh, well, John is now, what, 30, 30 years ago, but I think the therapy has evolved tremendously since that time. I think we know so much more about the brain and neurochemistry and so on. We know exactly what, how we can help patients, which we only had a general idea. After all, we were just building a Ford back then, now we're building a Rolls. We're learning an awful lot more, and the patients are benefiting from that knowledge. But uh, John did get a lot out of it. The problem was that he couldn't stay in it because the president at that time thought he was some kind of radical and chased him out of the country. But he, he wrote me many letters after saying how much he got out of it. The album really, you know, is primal. It's the Plastic Ono Band. The Plastic Ono Band, yeah. yeah. It's all about primal. He says, you know, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. And all he's left is me. I mean, just that's a pretty powerful album, and it's totally primal. Actually, a lot of people who come into primal have been listening to that album for hours before they come. And some of them, it provokes primal in them. In them. Well, I think it was certainly one of the more emotional charges of his albums. Right? Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, Dr. Janos, I'm curious if you maybe have some final words on the issue. What we've done over the years is refine this therapy so that it works, and that people do end their suffering and they do get better. And that's the, the most I can offer anybody, you know. We work on it night and day. Every hour of our therapy is taped and gone over and surveyed. We, we do research on the patients on vital signs before and after every session. We're very, very careful to control the therapy and make it really effective, and I think we have. And people who are suffering with depression and anxiety don't have to anymore. There is something we can do about it. With the people who take drugs, you know, people take drugs to feel better. Well, if you take the pain away out of the system, you do feel better, and that's really what happens. People start feeling better, their life falls into place, they don't keep doing the crazy stuff they used to do, or drink, or take drugs, or have crazy relationships, or, you know, all that falls away. You know, when you feel what's inside and what hurts, it all falls away and life, life stops taking shape and, and be great. Life can be really great once you've done that the main contribution of primal therapy. We're, like very successful. We're very successful with depression, by the way, and I have another book coming out called The Janop Solution about lifting depression. That's coming out in a few months. But we're having very, very good luck with, with depressive patients. Indeed, indeed. Well, Dr. Arthur's and Franz Janoff, I hope uh, the listeners will go check out your book, Primal Healing. Thanks very much. Thank you. It was certainly our pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And you were just listening to doctors Arthur and Franz Janoff from the Primal Center in Venice, California, discussing their new book, Primal Healing. This is the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
Rock Science Show. Well, it's that time now. Here's Jedi Master Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. Yoda? <clears throat> and Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. Strong with the force they are, but no two alike they will be. Hmm. Snowflakes they are. Yes, that's right, Yoda. You're not going to be able to tell the center of the Earth, are you, Hanlander? But what you will be able to tell is with our atomic force microscopy. Well, what is it? If you know or think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but those electrons just won't get away. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Lynn. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music.